0: Well, again, I want to say good morning to you all. It is a pleasure to be worshiping with you this morning as we're wrapping up this series that we're calling War of the Worlds, in which we're looking at subjects like spiritual warfare and angels and demons and asking ourselves the question, how do these spiritual realities affect our day-to-day lives? And so I think it's only right that before we dive into our text for this morning, that we take a moment to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have prepared this time and this space in which to meet with us. Oftentimes we turn on the news and we feel like we are in a confusing and chaotic world. And yet, Lord, you carve out spaces in which to meet with your people, in which to give us the gift of your peace and of courage and of hope. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us those gifts this morning. Open our hearts and our minds that we would indeed receive the message that you have for us today. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I said at the beginning of the service, we're talking about this idea of war of the worlds, the reality that we live as human beings in a battle, a spiritual battle between the forces of good and evil that actually affect our daily lives. And yet, in our world and in our culture, we have kind of an interesting relationship with the spiritual. On the one hand, we kind of see the spiritual as something to entertain us. On another hand, it's something to comfort us. But whether we're holding it at arm's length or whether we're really pressing into it, the point that we've been making throughout this series is that the battle is real. The Apostle Paul says it this way, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And when it comes to talking about the spiritual, when it comes to talking about angels and demons, we see them crop up in kind of interesting ways, because even for those outside the church, we kind of acknowledge them. But we acknowledge them in kind of uh, a variety of responses. One is to kind of acknowledge them in ways that kind of creep us out, but that we ultimately don't think about. So we have movies like The Exorcism of Emily Rose or The Exorcist. We watch these at Halloween time to just kind of give ourselves a fright. But then we don't really think about it all that much. Or angels and demons will pop up in shows like Supernatural. Where, again, it's, it's more there for our entertainment. I mean, one thing that I didn't realize is that this show, Supernatural, I think they're going into their 13th season now. I mean, that means that they have been around for over a decade talking about this subject. But, when, but, but again, the reason I put that up there is because we kind of treat the spiritual almost as if it's something for us to consume, something to entertain us, right? And the only time we really get, sp- uh, get serious about the spiritual is when a crisis comes up. And maybe we start praying again, or maybe we start reading horoscopes, or we go to palm readers, or or whatever it might be. But then we start to acknowledge, well, maybe there is some sort of spiritual reality behind all of this. One of the things that Scripture tells us that Jesus believed is that those spiritual realities play a role in our daily living. That they're not just there to entertain us, they're not so harmless as that but rather that human beings, just by virtue of our existence, we find ourselves in the middle of that battle. And so the question is, well, what do we do about it? And so throughout this series, we've been saying, well, we have to have some tactics. We have to have some ways of wrestling with it. And what we've said is we've said that in any battle, you really need to know three things. First, you need to know your enemy. The second thing you need to know is you have to understand his tactics. And thirdly, you have to rely on your battle plan. You need to know your enemy, understand his tactics, and rely on your battle plan. And so we've been talking about our enemy, and we've said that there is indeed evil personified, that the devil is real, that though he may try to trick us into believing he's not around, the truth that scripture brings to us is that he's very real and that he and his demons are very active in the lives of human people. And we've looked at some of the tactics that he's used. We talked about how he often starts with very subtle tactics. Tactics like temptation and deception. That he holds out something and he lies about the consequences of believing it. He tells lies and then he lies about the consequences of buying into them. He does all this to keep us distracted, to keep us unfocused, to keep us from really following God and considering what his purposes are for our lives. And when that doesn't work, he then moves to more overt tactics, tactics like destruction and accusation, ways of physically or emotionally or mentally taking us out of the fight. But what we've also seen as we've gone through this series is that God gives us incredible resources when it comes to this battle. In fact, we've been taking a look at the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, where one of the earliest followers of Jesus, a guy by the name of Paul, writes this about spiritual battle. He says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He says that God has actually given us an entire armory at our disposal, that we can use when the devil comes against us with temptation, deception, destruction, and accusation. And some of those things are truth and righteousness, peace and faith, salvation, and the word of God. That when the devil comes and he lies to us, God brings truth that helps us to see through the lies When the devil comes to accuse us and tells us that God doesn't love us, God reminds us that we are saved by him, that we are loved by him, and that in his eyes, because of Jesus, we are righteous. No one can accuse us. There are these amazing resources God gives us. So that while our our enemy, the devil, may roam around like a lion seeking someone to devour, the truth is he's a toothless lion. There's very little that he can do to harm us. But if we ended our series there, I think we'd be missing one other thing that is vitally important for us to recognize when it comes to this battle. First, we have to go back to knowing our enemy for just a minute. One of the things that Jesus says about the devil is this. He says that he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says that in John 8, verse 44. He says that the devil is always lying, and that if one lie doesn't work, he's going to try another. And there's one more lie that we have to wrestle with when it comes to fighting this spiritual battle in, the, in this world. And the lie is this. Satan wants us to believe that the way in which we engage in this battle is primarily defensive. That when Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, he wants us to believe that the way we do that wrestling is primarily by locking our shields and keeping our heads down. He wants us to believe that as we look out in the world and we see all the chaos and all the difficult things that are taking place, that the best that we can hope for as a church, as Christians, is to be on defense. That that is it. But I don't know about you guys, but having a team that only has a defense and not an offense is like a terrible thing. Like, it's horrible. And, and Bears fans, you guys know this, right? I mean, there are countless jokes out there on the internet about the Bears right now. These are a couple of my favorites. Dad, what's the Super Bowl? I don't know, son. We're Bears. <laughs> this is another one of my favorites. I set my DVR for the biggest loser, and it keeps recording Bears games. You guys know how it just, it stinks to have a team that has no offense. It's terrible. It's humiliating. In fact, my, my uncle was in from Pittsburgh this weekend, and he was at the last service. Look what he gave me at the last service. I have the terrible towel. That's a, that's a Steelers fan for you. And what's even worse is he gave these to my kids, so during the last hymn, they were waving them around like this. If that's not spiritual warfare, I don't know what is. That was terrible. But it's terrible to be on a team that has no offense, right? How many games did the Bears win in the regular season last year? Three. How many have they won this year? Zero. It's humiliating. And yet, the devil wants us to believe that we're on a losing team. That we're on a team that has no offense, That when we look at our world and we see that our culture and our society or the world at large is kind of going in a direction that is against what we believe, is against what we value, the best we can hope for is to keep our heads down, lock our shields, and hope that we make it through. Hope that the world won't bother us. And it can be very easy to buy into that lie. I mean, we can turn on the news and we can see things like hunger and poverty disease and war, greed and racism. And it's easy to look at those things and be like, where's the church in the midst of all of this? Are they just hunkered down somewhere, you know, enjoying their little worship services on Sundays and never really getting involved? I think it's tempting to believe that the church is primarily on the defense, that we're losing ground, that we're giving into fear, and sometimes we go so far as to believe the lie and take it even one step further and say, well, really, not only is the church not present, the church is actually responsible. The church is responsible for a lot of the injustice that we see in the world. And we, and we point to things like the Crusades and the Inquisition, and we say, look, isn't this terrible? This is what religion does. It just divides people. It leads to more death and destruction, and the church is right there smack dab in the middle of it. But what I would argue is that those lies, when we buy into them, aren't really based on truth and on evidence. I mean, don't get me wrong. There have been some dark chapters in the church's history. But I think we have to dig down deep to see that the basis of that lie really doesn't doesn't play out in scripture. And not, in the, not only in scripture, but it doesn't play out in human history. In fact, um, A man by the name of Tim Keller is a pastor in New York, wrote a best-selling book called The Reason for God. And he addressed that charge, that, that the church is responsible for injustice and violence. And he said, you know what's interesting about that accusation is that it depends on a moral foundation that was laid by the church. He says that that argument, that the church is responsible for injustice in the world, depends on a moral foundation laid by the church. Here's what he means. He says, you know, these ideas of justice and of human dignity and equality, of generosity and compassion and peace, were not values that were held in the ancient world. That although we today have kind of come to take them for granted, the truth is, is in the environment in which the church was born, those values were never assumed in fact, if you look back at the ancient world in which Christianity was born, it was at the height of the Roman Empire. And values like justice and generosity and mercy and peace were not values that were held by the wider pagan society of the day. They did hold to an idea of justice, but justice was essentially might makes right. Justice was whatever the Roman emperor decreed or whatever the senate decreed. That was justice. But ideas like mercy and compassion and peace, these were not widely held by pagans at the time. In fact, they weren't even really considered virtues. They were looked down upon that if you held to those values, you were seen as weak and a detriment to society. Because they believed that if you got sick, it was that you were being punished by the gods who were fickle. Or if you were poor, it was really your fault and no one should really be be generous or charitable to you because then you're simply wasting your resources on people who are a drain to society. That's what they believed in the pagan world. But then Christians came along and they started saying, you know, justice isn't something that's determined by the emperor. Justice is decreed by God and written into the very fabric of the universe. That human beings are made in his image, and that means that we all have dignity. And for those who, are, who have more, their responsibility in the world is to give to those who have less. They are to show compassion and mercy to those in need. Which is why Christianity didn't spread through the Roman world only by preaching, but it also was accompanied by incredible works of mercy and justice and generosity. that Christians actually cared for the poor and the outcast, that they spoke up on behalf of the voiceless, that when plagues ravaged ancient cities and everybody else was running for the hills, the Christians stayed in the urban areas to tend to those who were sick and to those who were dying, and that even when they were brought before for courts and burned at the stake for being traitors to the Republic, traitors to the Empire, they faced their deaths with joy and with peace, with courage and with humility. And if you go back and you read the writings of the ancient Romans at this time, they talk about how weird these people were. They actually charged them with being uh, people who lacked virtue because they were so kind and gentle and soft and humble and cared about everybody. They said these Christians are weird. They're bizarre. They give to the poor. They care for those who don't have a voice. What is wrong with them was the charge. And yet down through history, this is how Christians have operated. It's because of these different kinds of virtues that we have hospitals today. I mean, you've ever noticed the names on many hospitals Names like Mercy, Good Samaritan, Advocate, those are Christian words. Those are terms taken from our Gospels. That when the slave trade was taking place both in Europe and in the Americas, it was Christians on the front lines saying, this is wrong. That we have to abolish the slave trade because all human beings are made in the image of God. Now, the slave trade was very lucrative at the time. To actually abolish it in Europe would have meant the economy would have fallen into disaster. And the truth is, it did. But Christians set up and they said, you know, human lives are more important than our country's economy. And they led the charge in abolishing the slave trade. Likewise, we look at things like the civil rights movement and we forget that one of the leading figures of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr., was first and foremost not an activist, not a a civil rights leader. He was a Baptist pastor. And if you read his speeches and his letters and his writings, they drip with the language of the Old Testament prophets and with words from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, The church has always been on the offensive against injustice and darkness in the world. And that's not just with events in the past. Even today, Christians continue to lead the charge. In fact, one of the largest nonprofit organizations in the world dedicated to freeing people from the sex trade is an organization called International Justice Mission that was started by a Christian lawyer named Gary Haugen. Who said, I have a calling as a follower of Jesus and a responsibility as a lawyer to bring justice on behalf of those who have no voice. He started International Justice Mission after the genocide in Rwanda. And to date, they have freed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people from the, from the sex trade in countries around the world. Likewise, when hurricanes hit the southern United States, I don't know if you saw this this article floating around social media, but the Washington Times reported that Christians outpaced FEMA in aid to hurricane victims. That while FEMA was still evaluating, churches already had boots on the ground, providing food and relief and shelter and cleanup for those most affected. Christians have been on the offensive against darkness and suffering in the world. And even when we fall short, even when we mess up, even when we don't live up to our calling and people say the church is not doing justice in the world, they're making that argument on the basis of what we should be, of what God has called us to be. So this idea that we're on a losing team that has no offense doesn't have any basis in history, but furthermore, it has no basis in Scripture That Jesus conceived of our fight, our battle, in a very, very different way. And we actually see that in our gospel reading for this morning. It comes to us from Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Here's Here's how it opens. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Now, if you were a first century reader of Matthew's gospel, you would immediately note something that we often miss, and that's where Jesus asks this question. It says that he was in Caesarea Philippi, and we kind of read that and we're like, well, why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, if you look at where Jesus did most of his ministry, he did it around the Sea of Galilee. But actually, his headquarters was Capernaum, right there on kind of the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And Caesarea Philippi was about 20 to 25 miles to the north. So for him to go up to Caesarea Philippi was actually to leave his ballpark. It was to leave his backyard. He was in a region that he didn't frequent very often. But it gets even more wild when you consider that Caesarea Philippi is way up in the north, whereas the center of religious life was down in the south in Jerusalem. See, Jesus is is way out of step with where he normally does his ministry. That for him to go up to Caesarea Philippi would have been seen as a huge detour. But it looks like even more of a detour when you realize that Caesarea Philippi was a pagan outpost in a Jewish region. That it was the center of worship for Pan. Pan, you know, he's this uh, little character from Greek and Roman mythology. He had kind of like the hooves of a goat and the horns of a goat. And in Caesarea Philippi there was a massive temple to Pan that was known for its wild orgies and its debauchery. It was a thoroughly pagan city. It was a pagan outpost and Jesus decides he's going to take his disciples on a field trip there. And you can imagine that they go there and they say, this is what this is exactly what's wrong with the world. These Romans are everywhere. These pagans are running the show. They've established this outpost in Jewish country. What can we possibly do? Let's keep our heads down. Let's hope they go away. Let's maybe fight them and maybe defeat them with with strength of our own military might. That's, That's the best they could hope for. And yet it's there at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus asked them the question, who do the people say I am? And they respond, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when Jesus hears those words, he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But then he goes on and says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the face of this pagan city, And these pagan shrines, Jesus lifts up a battle cry. He says that on the basis of your confession that I am indeed the son of the living God, I will build my church. And this pagan culture that you see standing before you with all of its powers of darkness and wickedness shall not prevail against it. And it's worth noting a detail here, right? He says, the gates of hell shall not pr- prevail against it. Now, what kind of structures are gates? Are they offensive structures or defensive structures? They're defensive structures, right? I, you don't attack somebody with a door unless you're in the WWE. <laughs> then doors are fair game. But you don't attack somebody with gates. Gates. This is not an offensive weapon. You shut gates against the enemy in order to keep them out. You bar gates in the hopes that they don't break into your city and conquer you. And what Jesus is saying is on the basis that I am, in fact, the son of the living God, my church will go forward and wage war against the gates of hell. We will storm those gates, they will not prevail, and we will empty the cities of Hades. He says that our job as the church is to make hell empty. Our job as the church is to go into a dark world and bring light. Our job is to go into a world where people feel burdened by the things that they've done wrong and bring words of forgiveness. Our job is to go into a world that is ravaged by injustice and say that there is a God on his throne who has decreed justice. Freedom for the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. To go into places where there is weeping and death and bring comfort, hope, and new life. That is our job. That's what it means to be a part of the church As we march forward on the advance, you see the image that Jesus has in his head is not this image of the church with locked shields and heads down. It is an image of the church on the move, a church on the advance, a church that with courage, with hope, with humility and boldness goes out into the world and brings a different story that overturns the evil structures of the world, and instead brings the kingdom of God. And he says, and you all, you get to be a part of that mission. Now think about this for a second. Peter and all the guys who are standing there, these were nobodies. These were uneducated fishermen These were outcasts and losers who over and over again screw up, and yet Jesus says, Because I am the Son of the living God, you are more than conquerors. Paul later says it this way He says, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Through Christ, this mission will go forward, because He has died and rose again. Because he has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit, we need not be afraid. It's what we read in that passage from Timothy earlier. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Jesus says we are to be light in the darkness. We are to go into the world bringing the good news of his salvation because there will come a day when Christ will return again. And one of the things that the writer of the book of Revelation says about that day is this. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Behold, I I am making all things new. The victory has already been won. And God sends us out with his spirit into a world that needs to know that and needs to see that. That when people are trapped in the midst of dark times and they wonder where is God in the midst of this, Jesus' plan is that the church would be right there by their side saying he is here now. Now. That when people are lying in the hospital and say, where is God? Christians would be at the bedside saying, he's here now at the side of your bed. That when people mourn for a loved one who's lost and they say, where is God? You can say, he is here now mourning with you and death is not the end. That when there is injustice, when there is destruction in the world and people say, where is God? Christians are on the front lines bringing justice bringing relief and aid and help. And we can say with our words and our actions, God is here now, bringing healing and hope. That's our calling. It's an amazing adventure, and Jesus delights to call everyday people to join him in it. Not because of our strength, but because of his. That's what it means to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might so that we can go and bring hope into the world and so that at the end of it all we can say that as he stands in victory since cursed has lost its grip on me for I am his and he is mine bought with the precious blood of Christ let's pray Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that through you there is victory, that darkness does not have the last word, and that in the end, even death and the devil will be overthrown. So Lord, we cling to that hope. But we not only cling to that hope, Lord, we ask that you would send us with that hope, that by your spirit, we would be mighty in the world, that you would send us as your church to be on the front lines, bringing hope and peace to those who desperately need to hear it. So God, give us courage. Remind us of who we are. Send us with the power of your spirit that more people might know of your love, your grace, and your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and that the gates of hell would be knocked down and the cities of Hades emptied. We pray this for the salvation of the world and for your glory. It's in the name of Christ who has the victory that we say, Amen. You now many people wonder, where do I start?